The following episode of the 9pm edict contains international politics, COVID-19, and moisture. Tuesday, the 7th of June, 2022, the Winter Series begins right now with a very special guest indeed. Yun Xiang is the inaugural China Matters Fellow at the Australian Institute of International Affairs. So guess what we're talking about? Yes, it's China. In this episode, we talk about the horrors of Shanghai's COVID lockdown. People's pets being uh, beaten to death. We discuss China's relationship to the Pacific Island nations and to the world. China has definitely overreached in a lot of respects in terms of its uh, diplomacy. And is Australia's reaction to China's defence and trade agreement with Solomon Islands maybe a bit over the top? I think it is a bit of an overreaction that we are concerned that uh, another country may want to make a deal with China. That and much more. Hello, I'm Stilgerian. This is the 9pm Big Moist China Conversation with Yun Xiang. It, it'll make sense. Yun Xiang, thank you again for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Now, suddenly the world is very interested in the Pacific Island nations. I know we want to talk about some things closer to your speciality a bit later, but we seem to have discovered the Pacific Islands. We've got the Solomon Islands signing a security agreement a couple of months ago. Then about a week ago, China's foreign minister, Wang Yi, toured the region. Now, this ABC News report from about a week ago started with some terrible puns on the fact that the foreign minister was holding a carved stick. (laughs) Talk loudly and carry a big stick. Wang Yi's carving a path through the Pacific on his eight-nation tour, determined to cement China's commercial, security and strategic ties, while also assuring the West it has nothing to fear. My advice to these people is don't be too anxious and don't be too nervous. Today he sat down for a virtual meeting with 10 Pacific Island foreign ministers. On the table, a sweeping regional agreement first leaked last week, which would tie China and the Pacific together across trade, development, policing and cyber security. The common development and prosperity of China and developing countries will only mean greater harmony, greater progress and greater justice across the whole world. But the proposed agreement is contentious, with Pacific leaders warning the region could be sucked into a new Cold War. Now, the Pacific nations did not sign up to that agreement a bit early Mm. in the process. I mean, they've really only just seen it. But let's go back a bit. What's, What's China looking for here? Well, firstly, I, I just want to say that you know, Australia uh, did not just discover the Pacific. There was a Pacific <laughs> step up under the previous government. And that was also very much um, intended to counter uh, China's presence mm. and interest in the Pacific as well. So um, I, I should blame the, current- the media, really. It is the media <laughs> who only just discovered the island. Oh, right, right. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I was at the um, Department of Prime Minister Cabinet when the Pacific Step Up was announced. So uh, that, that was a pretty big deal uh, within the bureaucracy, at least. Yes. Um, but back to the question, China's interest in the Pacific. Uh, Pacific. So first and foremost, 
from the uh, Chinese government's perspective, um, its interest is primarily uh, economic. So mm-hmm. China has uh, investment in the region, in a lot of uh, Pacific countries. Um, and to go along with that, with a lot of countries, when they have investment in other countries, they want to protect those investments. So often along with investment, then you comes with security interests as well. Now, another uh, of China's interests is in diplomatic interests. Mm. So in terms of that, Pacific countries, uh, despite uh, them being small countries um, with small populations, um, at the United Nations, it's one country, one vote. And the Pacific countries um, have a lot, uh, have a you know uh, a substantial amount of votes in the United Nations, um, especially on issues such as climate change. Mm. And thirdly, um, the Chinese people there is a quite of a I guess a long-standing um, Chinese population in the Pacific as well. Um, so so there are uh, cultural connections there as well. So those are I guess the main interests of China in the region. So how does this then fit in with um, the Belt and Road Initiative, which is more about connecting back towards Europe? Actually, maybe we should explain what BRI is first for those who aren't across it. So the Belt and Road Initiative is basically China's um, effort at um, um, investing overseas. Um, So it's um, invest uh, overseas, especially in infrastructure, but also in um, other areas as well. Um, And countries uh, may sign up to, for example, memorandum of understanding with China, basically saying we will work together on this Belt and Road Initiative. Um, It is a signature initiative of uh, President Xi Jinping of China, but it is also more of a slogan because there is not like a central list or database of which projects are Belt and Road oh. Initiative projects either. So almost any of China's um, foreign investment projects can be counted in Belt and Road Initiative. On the other hand, if something goes wrong, they can just say, well, you know, that's just a private investment that has nothing to do with us. So it is uh, not really a clearly defined concept either. <laughs> okay. it's So a lot of that has been connected with low-interest loans – and my mm. understanding is, compared to, say, the, the Japan Development Bank, I think that's its title, China will offer, well, they're more likely to approve a loan, but I think the conditions are tougher. If you miss payments, uh, the penalties come in more quickly, I think. Um, and that's caused some problems for some nations. Have I got that right? Uh, so uh, compared to, say, uh uh, first, um, yes, they make loans to uh, specific projects, and sometimes they come. Um, they often comes with you know guarantees. So if mm. if a loan uh, falls over, maybe they can then take assets, right? Um, they are loans. They're not you know uh, foreign aid, so they're separate. They're not foreign aid. They're actually loans, commercial loans. Um, mm-hmm. Although sometimes they can be with uh, um, below the market rate, so it can be concessional loans as well. Um, but the, when they give out loans, it's not with expectation that the loans will fail. What they want to do is say they still want to make money, just like, you know, the, the primary interest with those loans is to make money. They don't want to go there expecting the loans to fail. Um, so there's a lot of um, discussions around what's called debt trap diplomacy. And mm-hmm. 
um, evidence has shown that that does not exist. There is there's not a there is not a debt trap diplomacy from China. They they go in there wanting to make money. They don't want the loans to fail. Okay, so to sum that up, really, does it fit in with Belt and Road Initiative? Both yes and no. Yes, that it's investment. No, that well, maybe not, because we don't know what the uh, RI means. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly right. There, there are probably some big state-owned enterprise projects that's um, that's quite clearly uh, Belt and Road Initiative-aligned projects. Um, but then there are also because Belt and Road Initiative projects are not necessarily state-owned enterprise only. They also count private enterprise projects, and those projects it's harder to tell whether they belong to BRI or not. Okay, so. Going back to earlier this year, we have the Solomon Islands deal with China, which was signed. That's been described as a, what is it, a trade and security deal. Now, in the Australian media at the time, it was all, oh my God, Chinese ships, 2,000 kilometres, just 2,000 kilometres <laughs> from Australia. As I said at the time, like that's the distance in Europe. It's the distance from London to the Russian Baltic port of Kaliningrad. It's like... Oh, wow. It's Yeah, it's across so much of Europe. So how should we think about this? Because China's saying, no, we don't want to build a naval base in Solomon Islands, whatever. Should we feel that this is a threat or is it just, I don't know, commercial operations again and China wants a stable Solomon Islands without riots outside the Prime Minister's office, because that sort of thing's bad for business. Well, first we need to remember that uh, Solomon Islands also have a security agreement with Australia as well. And, and the United States, is... and I think Japan <laughs> maybe. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, those countries, they, they can make uh, deals with countries they like. They are a sovereign country. Um they're not part of Australia. We can't control what sort of deals uh, they make with other countries. Yes, um, that does get forgotten sometimes. Comments like our backyard. So it's their backyard. So so I think it is a bit of an overreaction that we are concerned that uh, another country may want to make a deal with China. Now, when it comes to building uh, military bases, um, it's always a question of whether it – it is in Solomon Islands' interest to build, uh, to have a mil- to host a military base for China. Um, and at the moment, I don't think the Solomon Islands government itself wants to uh, host a military base anyway. And I guess from Australia's perspective, what we want is to make sure that uh, um, it is not going to be in Solomon Islands' interest to build a military base. So to summarise, is this, looking more broadly at the South Pacific thing, really, as some commentators have said and as uh, the Labor Party has said, Australia's worst foreign policy disaster in decades. That's a big call. Uh, I think it is a big call. Uh, look, uh, <laughs> I, I don't like to compare disasters and to say which one is the worst disaster, okay. so, so I think I won't comment on that. Okay. Excellent. Well, let's uh, change the subject. A 
Across Shanghai, there were celebrations, reunions, selfies, and relief. The city of 25 million brought to a standstill, now springing back to life. He says, I'm itching to jump into the Huangpu River and mess around. That's how excited I am. The easing of a two-month lockdown, one of the toughest anywhere, triggered joyful traffic jams here and saw people strolling the streets because they could. I'm taking a bike ride and um, going to check and see if I can enter the supermarket. Anna Catalina, an American student, hadn't been outside since late March. Streets and parks that had been empty are alive again and crowds acting like curious tourists return to the famous waterfront, the Bund. Now, that reports from NBC News in the States. Um, it goes on for some minutes, uh, people being very happy to be outside. That's great. The Shanghai lockdown, do you think it's really over? Because, I mean, you're not an epidemiologist, obviously, but where, where does this leave us? The lockdown is officially over, uh, uh-huh. but no, I wouldn't say it's really over. Um, but but first, uh, for because now I'm guessing we have listeners uh, m- mostly from Australia. I just want to say yes. that the lockdown in Shanghai is quite different from um, the lockdowns we have been experiencing in Australia. For example, I'm in the ACT Canberra um, during the our relatively short lockdown compared to Victoria, at least. Um, Melbourne, um, we can still, for example, go outside. We can go shopping. We can exercise. Um, so those are things that there's certain things we can go outside for. But the Shanghai lockdown is very, very strict. Uh, they couldn't go outside at all, basically. Uh, they have shopping. They have to do almost like a group buying. And um, when some they, they basically do a test, do a COVID test uh, every day. And if you detect the positive, you're uh, grabbed and hold it to a centralized quarantine uh, place. Uh, so, so the lo- nature of lockdown is very different. And now, of, even though the lockdown is officially over, um, there's still I'm hearing there's still sporadic neighborhood uh, testing arrangements and lockdowns still. Uh, yeah, and by lockdown, we we're talking about you know uh, Berlin-style walls built around neighborhoods for those of you old enough to remember the Cold War. Um, and, uh, and uh, yeah, just just arrests if you stepped outside straight away. Um, also, uh, some really harsh measures like people's pets being um, beaten to death. I mean, this is not official policy, but how it's enforced is very harsh in certain circumstances. I've seen over many years, you know, China is a big place and... You know, there's a lot of local devolution of power and how particular laws are implemented. Mm. So presumably, Shanghai itself was deciding how to implement the broader instructions from Beijing. Yeah, it's not just uh, at the city level. There's also neighbourhood level as well. So there are neighbourhood officials. uh, Some of them take more draconian measures Mm. um, than others, uh, but it affects everyone in the city. For example, people, especially people with medical conditions, some of them can't get to hospitals, they can't get Medicare, um, get healthcare treatment. Um, and then they, especially for people with chronic pain, um, that's they'll be suffering. I wanted to play another clip from that NBC report because it, it went on to explain 
uh, that despite, as you say, officially the lockdown is over, um, things are still very strict. China's tough zero COVID policy is here to stay. It means a near daily ritual of mass testing. Here in Beijing, a negative test report is needed every 48 hours to get into an office building or park, even a convenience store. Officials are also using big data to trace and quarantine every close contact of every COVID case. And in addition to that, uh, they showed shots of the, the isolation hospitals, the quarantine hospitals, which really just do have little cubicles for everyone. They're quite horrible. Um, they're now kind of permanent. Mm. Has this sort of stuff been built across China? I mean, we see stuff from Shanghai because it's it's a big modern coastal city. Do we know what things are like in the other cities, further inland with with weaker links out to the rest of the world? I'm not too familiar with other cities because uh, my family is also in Shanghai. Um, so uh-huh. they've been telling me stories about uh, their, their situations and lockdowns around them. And now they're uh, of you know, middle class so and they don't really have any health conditions. So they have been quite lucky. But for um, a lot of you know, migrant workers or people without a permanent fixed address, um, they are definitely doing a lot tougher. Um, even despite, as you're saying, you know, even despite the official lockdown being over, there's still so much uncertainty. There could be snap lockdowns. Um, if someone in your neighborhood um, gets test positive, then it's potentially the entire neighborhood gets under lockdown again. Um, so it doesn't. It's it's definitely not over. People are still facing a lot of uncertainty. But that's the real fear, isn't it? People don't want to go out because you don't want to be stuck for what? I'm sure it's more than a week. How long do you have to go to the isolation hospital for? Oh, look, that's another uh, uh, that's another issue that's quite uncertain. There are stories online of people getting stuck in a like a halfway point um, without, uh, for example, showers as well. Um, so, so they were told to uh, pack their bags and then they're going to this uh, hospital, uh, not hospital, a uh, hotel where there's limited shower facilities and they could stay there for, uh, they have no idea how long they, they will be staying there for before they get into a quarantine center. And once they get to these uh, hospital, COVID hospitals, um, again, there's a shortage of toilets, um, shortage of basically no shower facilities at all, um, and they have some. So sometimes they don't know when they can get out either. Even because they have to do this, apparently they have to be positive at least twice twice in a row. Sometimes it's positive and the next day is negative. So a lot of uncertainties uh, for people. Now I did see you tweet the other day some pictures of protests <laughs> against all this. And you did make a comment that, you, you know, the idea that the Chinese people just will agree with everything and never protest. I mean, it's certainly not true. And we've had an anniversary just the mm. other day that should remind us of this. Okay, this podcast just got banned in China. But <laughs> the censorship of all this has been intense too, hasn't it? Yes, yes, very much so. Um uh, even right at the start of the outbreak, of course, there was censorship. Um, mm. The doctors who were discussing um, this new, um, I guess, a, a flu-like virus, they they got censored. Um, and then there was the self um, self media uh, who visited Wuhan at the start of the outbreak, and they also got censored. Um, and the censorship is continuing, uh, but 
they don't censor, the government doesn't censor everything either because they do need to allow some steam um, to come out. Mm. So they don't censor everything. And that's why online you can often find stories of people um, dealing with those uh, quarantine hospital, uh, quarantine and dealing with hospitals and difficulties they're facing because not everything is censored. So where does this leave the people of, of, of Shanghai and of China more broadly? There's been massive interruptions in, in all manner of ways. Young people, I mean, we have here people in, in Australia and the US talking about people's childhoods being ruined and uh, the economy suffering, whatever. But with such intense lockdown measures, surely this is going to hit China very hard. Oh, yes. Uh, I've... I feel there will be longer-term impact that we're not really seeing yet, um, in particular with young people and also with um, people-to-people links with other countries. So I'm seeing that young young people are becoming less optimistic about the future. Now, mm. the trend has started even before COVID. This whole about uh, lying down flat movement, um, people are very stressed about work, um, looking for work, Currently, the youth unemployment rate is especially high with new graduates. Um, so young people are definitely feeling um, not so optimistic. And the lying being, down you know, flat movement. What's yeah, that? lying flat movement. It's a bit like I think in Australia, United States, there was a movement called what's it called? The Great Resignation. Is the that Great what, Resignation? Was yes, some, this was equivalent. The idea yeah. that. People were just leaving jobs they were no longer enjoying. Yeah, so so it's a kind of similar to that. Young people are saying, you know, with the pressure of what they call nine nine six, which is yes. you work for from nine a.m. to nine p.m. six days a week. Yes, um, you work for very very long hours, and the young people are feeling very stressed about that. But unfortunately. They can't afford to resign either because of a high uh, pressure, leaving cost pressure at the same time. So they're saying they want to lie flat. flat. They just want to, you know, lie down and relax. But at the same time, they can't. And that's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out. uh, Because, of course, the the factories, the tech companies are working 996. I remember the, uh, the head of Huawei talking at length about uh, the importance yes. of it. Yes, the tech companies were very, very, they actually talk up. They're saying, you know, working long hours is good. But uh, I think for most workers, that they, they don't agree with that. And in fact, it is also against the uh, Chinese labor laws as well. It's not even legal. Right. So how will this play out? Because Xi is presumably wanting to continue China having its massive industrial economy uh, being the biggest in the world. That's This is part of his legacy. Could he just change the law? Could there be strikes? Uh, I mean, what are the possible outcomes here? Um, certainly there's a lot of economic challenges in China right now, um, mm-hmm. especially from COVID, uh, the, yes. the whole COVID zero and the continuing lockdowns um, is uh, gives the economy a lot of uncertainty, but at the same time, there are also a lot of demographic um, problems facing the country. Of course, they want people to have children now. They used to have a one-child policy, the famous one-child policy. 
Now it has became two children two child policy first and three child policy now. They're trying to encourage young people to have more children, but young people don't want to have children. Um, there's a quite a famous uh, clip going around social media as well about uh, basically the, uh, the 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 COVID enforcers came to uh, a couple a family uh, home and said, you know, if you don't come with us, it will uh, it will affect you for the next three generations. And then the the young couple said, well, we're the last generation. Um, yeah. <laughs> People don't want to have children because of the high cost of living and mm. they're, they're not really being, you know, optimistic about the future. So so the country is facing a lot of challenges um, in terms of economy, in terms of people. Um, you know, the, young, the young people are facing a choice as well. Some, some of them, because of the COVID, they want to leave China. They want to go overseas to live because of the, uh, the harsh restrictions um, having to do with COVID right now. On the other hand, some of them want to stay in China to be close to their family because they think, well, if I leave China today, who knows when I will come back? Um, so many people mm. are stuck overseas right now wanting to go back to China as well. So they're facing a lot of tough choices. Um, it's almost a binary choice. you know. Before the COVID started, people can move between countries, between borders quite easily. And nowadays they almost have to face a choice of either be overseas or in China. That's interesting because where I am up in the Blue Mountains, um, a lot of the local economy is based on tourism. And although Australia's borders have opened up to tourists, when still not seeing the package tours of middle-class Chinese people coming for their holiday in Australia, it's still, it's still not there. Anyway, time to uh, take a break, I think, and uh, do the housekeeping. The next episode in the winter series of this podcast uh, is possibly going to be a little less serious uh, than this one because our special guest will be David F. Porteous uh, on the line from Scotland, from Edinburgh, in fact. Uh, we'll be talking about what's happening in the UK uh, and then whatever else comes to mind. I, I suspect we'll burn through a few trigger words just to, to see what happens. Uh, he's an author, he's a social researcher, he's a podcaster, he's all those things. Uh, now, if you have trigger words or a conversation topic uh, specifically for Mr David F. Bordius, I will need to know uh, by next Wednesday, the 15th of June, that's about a week away, by 6pm Australian Eastern Standard Time. Uh, that's all written down somewhere. If you... If, if you accept email from me, then you've already got an email that tells you this. Uh, and this is, well, yes, this is the Winter Series. Uh, so uh, thank you to everyone who contributed to the 9pm Winter Series 2022 possible crowdfunding campaign. There's quite a few of you, and, and some of you were most generous. Uh, this episode I will list and thank those of you who are up at the... Uh, up at the top end of the reward structure, uh, so uh, f uh, buying a, th a conversation topic was Mr. Gay Rainbow Anarchist. Thank you, sir. Do uh, send a, a suitable topic in for us to do sometime in the coming months. Uh, and people who bought three trigger words, um, some of you 
don't get around to sending in trigger words, which is lovely. I mean, I, I mean, thank you for your generosity, but you know, we need to collect a few. Um, although there's plenty, there's plenty, there's plenty in the glass jar at the moment. Uh, but buying three trigger words: Craig Crompton, Crispin Harris, John Lindsay, Jonathan Ferguson, Peter Sanderlands, Peter Vertel, Sheepy, Travis Smith. And one person who chooses to remain anonymous, even though the the people who are anonymous are sometimes quite generous. So thank you to you all. And for this episode, uh, uh, who just uh, threw a tip in the tip jar, thanks to Jonathan Lawrence. So thanks for that. He says thanks for the book recommendation. Now, I did that on Twitter, and I'm pretty sure he's referring to the biography of Penny Wong, uh, who is a Senator Penny Wong, uh, Australia's new foreign minister. Um, a biography of her was written just before the, the last election in 2019. 2019. Um, it's called Penny Wong, Passion and Principle. It's uh, written by Margaret Simons, who is a, a brilliant journalist. Uh, it's published by uh, Black Ink Books. Uh, so check that out. Um, I will warn you, I'm in it. I do appear in the book and am quoted in the book um, only a little bit. And it's um, – oh, you'll find out. Get the book, read it. Penny Wong, Passion and Principle by Margaret Simons. Um, it's a fascinating story, very well put to, together. Uh, so thank you, Jonathan. If you would like uh, to join those people in supporting uh, the podcast or my life in general or just want to thank me for something – uh, you can go to the 9pmedict.com slash tip. That's the 9pmedict.com slash tip. Time now, Yun, for some trigger words. No, trigger words. That's very interesting. Now, as regular listeners know, this is the glass jar of transparency. It contains folded up pieces of paper. Each piece of paper has a word written on it, which is chosen by one of the podcast supporters in the hope that this will trigger a conversation. So I think I think we've got time to do two of them. First one coming out, and I don't know what this is either. Ah, oh dear. Okay, so... There's a supporter called Silvano who couldn't choose a word, so he outsourced that on Twitter. And Tim Politi on Twitter chose the word moist. <laughs> M-O-I-S-T. Okay. okay um, I'm trying to think back to my uh, – I think that's a, that's a very uh, – how should I put this? I think back to my high school days, that yeah. was a, a word that people often just to say, say, I don't know, even know why they like to say it. They just like to say it <laughs> in high school. On some t- program that moist is supposedly the most unpleasant word in the English language or something that someone said that. I don't know. Okay. Like, you know, your clothes, well, they're not uh, wet, uh, they're moist. I've, I've thought of something well, sensible guess, we could uh, talk about. But you go weather. on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Climate change, rising sea levels. There we go. Cities like Shanghai and 
some other important industrial cities really are river cities right there on the coast. Yeah. This yeah. is and, this and is some important. Parts of the city are, are lower than the sea level as well. I think same with uh, the Netherlands. Yeah, I believe that's why and they have the walls, the dikes. Yes, <laughs> to, to the prevent dike, the sea coming in. I think. Um, yeah, I think in Shanghai as well. Parts parts of Shanghai is underwater, and Jakarta is slowly sinking into the ocean. Oh, sinking into the ocean. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, so Jakarta's uh, in real trouble. They've got rising sea level and because the city has sucked all the water out of the ground to have water for everyone, it's sinking as well. So Jakarta's in oh dear. real trouble. Uh, I think maybe 10 years ago I wasn't, I myself wasn't so concerned about climate change because uh, oh. I thought, oh, you know, it's a problem for the next generation, but it's uh-huh. quite clear that it's affecting everyone right now. Yeah. We have seen that. A few years ago, well, perhaps 10 years ago now, I remember China's attitude to coal, for example, was, hey, you in the West got to industrialise by burning coal and now it's our turn. How dare you suggest that we can't modernise in the same way? That does seem to be changing a little bit. Yes, it is changing. Um, and that has, I would say, more to do with domestic politics than um, foreign politics. It's not that they're changing because of international pressure, although, you know, there there's a lot of international pressure on China to change because mm. they are the biggest um, emitters. Uh, but it's changing because domestic politics, um, people in China can see very clearly that the environment has been changing. The river has, especially at first, it's a very much environmental movement with the pollution of the river, pollution of air. It's uh, so visible to everyone um, that people were getting very, very concerned about the environmental change. Um, And and so the government is now, you know, uh, perhaps not moving as fast as uh, some people would like, but uh, (laughs) we are seeing the, the rhetoric changing. Okay. Well, thank you to Silvano and uh, Tim for that one. And we will do a second one. This is from Bruce Hardy, and it's an interesting word, overreach. Mm. Mm. Ah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I always think of these things in serious ways and thinking, has China overreached in its kind of interest in the South Pacific just recently? Was it pushing too hard when the Pacific leaders generally don't make decisions that fast. They're a much more consensus-based group through the Pacific Islands Forum and so on. Uh, Or has China overreached with its economy generally? It modernised very quickly. I I, I think you're quite right. I think China has definitely overreached in a lot of respects in terms of its uh, diplomacy. Um, Mm -hmm. What I'm thinking... When I think about China's um, foreign policy, you know, China aspires to be a great power like the United States. So what it's often trying to do is to emulate what the United States have been doing. Um, and we know that the United States have often overreached in its foreign policy. And unfortunately, China 
is also, uh, I guess, imitating the United States in that as well. It is often very prone to overreach as well. And I think the current, uh, uh, the current uh, Pacific, uh, what's happening in the Pacific is an example of that. Now, you've worked not only in PMNC, but in defence. And China is, is very rapidly building a blue water navy. Now, that is something we're all watching. Australia's therefore looking at buying more submarines and that's a whole thing. It is a massive expansion and that's not cheap. Yes. So, you know, China's military expenditure has grown quite significantly in recent Mm. years and that has worried a lot of other countries in the region. That's true. But as a percentage of GDP, China's uh, military spending has actually been flat. Oh, it's okay. been at about 2% uh, for the last 10 years or so. Um, so it's, and you know, in Australia, we like to talk about uh, military spending as percentage of GDP as well. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. from, you know, if we look at that metric, China's actually spending is, is not that much different from before. It's just that its GDP has increased. Its economy has grown. Now, because of its economy grown, then uh, I guess naturally its defense would also go up as well. It mm-hmm. will be odd uh, for China to, I think, to decrease its uh, military spending as a proportion of its GDP. But you're right. You know, for all countries, it is always a matter of, you know, do we spend on guns or the battle? Should mm. we be improving domestic economy, looking after our people, the elderly, uh, people who are uh, marginalized uh, communities, perhaps, or should we spend more on guns, on uh, military? Um, so I guess that's a question for a lot of countries. I think to put this in context too, 2% of GDP is the benchmark for NATO countries. Uh, Australia now has defence spending at around, like, I think it's so close to 2%, it doesn't matter. The United States is one of the big outliers at I think nearly 4%. Uh, and well, North Korea. North Korea is just a strange place. They're spending way more than that on defence. Yeah, but that's, that's well, it North Korea. Have much of an economy. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, interesting. It's it's something to watch. So thank you, Bruce, uh, for that. The next parliament is going to be the most diverse that we've seen and a lot of people are hoping this is going to be a real turning point when it comes to Australian politics. Let's start with the gender breakdown. At least 14 new women will be added to the House of Representatives and while at least three women have lost their seats to men, there'll be a significant increase overall of the number of women in the lower house. It's not just the male-female split that's getting a shake-up. There'll be significantly more culturally and linguistically diverse MPs this time around as well. That includes a record number of Asian and South Asian MPs, including independent Dai Lee and Labor's Michelle Ananda Raja, Sally Situ, Sam Lim, Cassandra Fernando and Zanita Mascarenas. And despite the former Minister for Indigenous Australians, Ken Wyatt, losing his seat, there'll be more First Nations MPs this time around too. Yana Stewart in Victoria and Gordon Reid in New South Wales were both successful. And in the NT, the election of Jacinta Price to the Senate and Marion Scrimgeour to the lower house means that for the first time, three out of the four MPs in the NT are Indigenous women. That's the ABC's Georgia Hitch from, well, a couple of weeks ago now. More women, more Asian and South Asian representation. There's some Muslims in the ministry, more Indigenous members. It's significant. I I mean, historic, really. 
Yun, how much of a difference do you think this will make? I think it's hugely important that mm. the uh, that the parliament um, reflects its community, and we know that the community also wants to see themselves reflect in the parliament. Um, Australia is actually the worst when it comes to diversity uh, of parliamentarians when compared to other um, uh, equivalent migrant ag- Anglosphere um, countries, such as you know United States. Canada, United Kingdom, and New Zealand. We are the worst. Or at least we used to be. I'm not sure if we are still the worst now. It's all just Um, changed. (laughs) Even under the, you know, Trump government administration or the conservative government in the United Kingdom, there was actually more diversity than Australia. So it's not not just a, you know, left and right divide either. Um, It's very, very, um, for me personally, I feel really... um, uh, what's the word? <laughs> I feel very, very happy to hear that. I, I've, uh, people come to me and they say, you know, I'm, I feel they, they t- they're telling me they, they now have aspiration. They say Asian, it's possible for Asian Australians to, to get into politics. So now they're thinking, oh, well, maybe I can get into politics as well. Maybe it is actually possible after all for me to be a politician. Um, so that kind of an aspirational message is just hugely important for, for people from um, diverse communities. Now, now you did want to talk about this in the context of uh, the new Secretary of Prime Minister and Cabinet. Phil Gaitchens is gone. Uh, he was Scott Morrison's ally, shall we say, friend, colleague. Glyn Davis is the new Secretary. What difference will he make? And I will say, I always link to everything we talk about. In the podcast, there's lots of links on the podcast webpage. There is In the Mandarin, uh, which is a, a website with news about public administration in Australia and, and the work of government. Uh, they describe Glyn Davis as a deep thinker who plays the long game, which is an amazing line. Expect change. What change can we expect then, Yun? Yeah, it's such a surprising appointment. I talk to uh, to my friends in the APS uh, very often still, and you know that 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 name came out of nowhere. No one has said uh, Davis will be the secretary. Um, so so it was a surprising news to almost everyone. Um, but he he I think. Uh, he was in the uh, he was involved uh, very much so in the Thoughty review of the Australian Public Service. So I am thinking that we will see um, APS capability being quite a uh, focus under his leadership. And I also uh, very happy to when I revisited the Thoughty review to see one of the recommendation is um, increasing cultural diversity in the APS. Um, one of the recommendations is actually about setting a targets, uh, a target for um, senior leadership, the senior executive service in the APS um, from diverse backgrounds. Um, so I hope that can be implemented. That will be interesting. Uh, the Mandarin also describes Davis uh, that he his approach is tactical, evidence based, and unrelenting. That is that unrelenting is an amazing word. <laughs> To throw in, I should say he was the uh, chair of public policy at the Crawford School. I want to say, I'll say it more confidently Crawford for the school at ANU. 
Yeah. All right, I'll say that <laughs> the Crawford more School confidently. He is the Chair of Public Policy at the Crawford School at the Australian National University. There you go. I'll sound confident there. This does mesh yeah. with Albanese's statements about the importance of the public service too. Yes, yes. Um, so the public service, I think, and many people also think, uh, has been declining um, in its capability for at least a decade now. You know, mm. it used to be the uh, when people say public service deliver uh, frank and fearless advice to the government, but we know that under the previous government, um, both the secretary of the prime minister cabinet as well as the prime minister has made speeches about how the public service expect to implement the government policy rather mm. than you know give the government advice. And I genuinely, I really, really hope that this can change with the new secretary that the government that the public service can um, build back its capability and actually deliver genuine policy advice to the government. Something I, I'm not sure whether I've ever mentioned this um, on the podcast, but my very first proper job outside university was back in the uh, 1980s um, in the public service where that was back in the days when the government like owned the airports and owned electricity oh. systems or whatever. So I worked in what was called the Department of Aviation and for a very brief period uh, before we sold it all. Uh, but <laughs> um, there was this sense of there should be constant improvement that 10% of the budget should be spent on staff development and working out new ways of doing things and, and so on. And and now all of that kind of work is is done by the big four consulting firms. It's all PricewaterhouseCoopers mm. and, uh, and the rest of them doing that. It's a it's going to be a big change. Well, I'm hoping it, it's a it big was, change. It is going to be a big change, although I'm thinking, you know, what has happened is that they put a cap on the Australian public service. So yes. so, there's, so the department can't hire more public servants, but then they just outsource all the work to the um, consultants. And a lot of them are ex-public servants anyway. Right. But you're paying five times so, the price for them, yeah. Yes, yes, <laughs> except being more expensive. Um, so perhaps there won't be so much change in that a lot of them then just come back as public servants potentially. <laughs> that would be quite lovely, actually. Look, to bring it back to China, uh, in the last 24 hours as we record this, we've had this news. The federal government has just confirmed that an Australian maritime surveillance aircraft has been intercepted by a Chinese fighter aircraft during a routine maritime surveillance activity in the South China Sea region. On the 26th of May, a RAF P-8 maritime surveillance aircraft was intercepted by a Chinese J-16 fighter during routine maritime surveillance activity in the region of the South China Sea. The intercept resulted in a dangerous manoeuvre and conduct that threatened the safety of both the Australian aircraft and crew. What occurred was that the J-16 aircraft flew very close to the side of the P-8 maritime surveillance aircraft. In flying close to the side, it released flares. 
the J16 then accelerated and cut across the nose of the P8, settling in front of the P8 at very close distance. At that moment, it then released a bundle of chaff, which contains small pieces of aluminium, some of which were ingested into the engine of the P8 aircraft. Quite obviously, this is very dangerous. So chaff, or chaff, as we from Adelaide pronounce it, also called window during the Second World War, strips of, well, plastic coated with aluminium foil cut to match the wavelength of intercept radars and when you chuck out a packet of it, it creates a big fuzzy blob on your radar and you hope that that um, conceals you and you can get away for any radar-guided systems. 70-year-old technology, wonderful stuff. You don't want it sucked into your engine if you're flying an aircraft. Uh, Also, for those new to the game, that is our new Defence Minister, Richard Miles, who is also um, Deputy Prime Minister. And I will say, Ewan, um, uh, I believe that that is the first time uh, China has used that specific tactic, shining lasers at our aircraft, the targeting lasers, sure, going close, whatever, but actually a bunch of chaff in your face is a new one. But... This kind of aggressive behaviour, is this out of the ordinary? Because I thought for this freedom of navigation work over the South China Sea and elsewhere, this is this is kind of, this is the game. This is how the game is played. Yeah, so it's, um, the, the Chinese military has often uh, been using um, what uh, a lot of people believed to be dangerous maneuvers and tactics um, around that region, around uh, South China Sea, as well as uh, on Taiwan Strait as well. Um, they have been, you know, trying to fly very closely, close to other countries' aircraft, for example. Um, and unfortunately, that could uh, lead to unintended consequences. Um, there has been times in the past where uh Aircrafts may, uh, because of a dangerous movement, the aircraft uh, may lose control, and then that will then escalate into more of a political crisis as well. Uh, so, those of of course, countries should not do that, and China should not do that. Uh, and uh, but uh, unfortunately, I think you're right. It is uh, kind of a war. if we go there, that that's kind of what we expect as well. But um, I think it's. Well, from what the def- the new defense minister, Minister for Defense, has said, I think he strike a very, very factual and measured tone. Um, I think that's a quite of a departure from the previous Minister for Defense. Yes, uh, Peter Dutton is not noted for his subtlety in these matters. From China's point of view, could this specific incident be be like a test for the new government, just to see how they'll respond? Uh, I am not too sure, to be honest, uh, because this kind of, um, you know, the, the Australia's military operations will be planned, I assume, quite well in advance. Yeah. Uh, it's unlikely to be something that's, uh, you know, the new government comes in and we go fly over to South China Sea. And it's unlikely to be the case. No, no, this is so an ongoing operation, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so I think... Uh, 
perhaps uh, we, we shouldn't read too much into it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It'll be interesting to see uh, how this does change over over coming months. At least China is returning Australia's phone calls now at the government level, which is a significant change. <laughs> oh, I, I wouldn't say, you know, the, the diplomatic freeze uh, is over yet. Uh, uh, no. There is a... <laughs> Perhaps a little bit of a thawing, uh, but uh, the relationship is still uh, difficult. And uh, I would say, um, you know, until we see a ministerial visit or uh, or maybe, you know, ease of tariffs or perhaps the return of uh, Australian citizens, um, I wouldn't uh, call a victory yet. Oh, no, as soon as you start making a list, it's <laughs> it's quite... It's quite the list of <laughs> tensions, isn't there? Look, we could talk, obviously, for ages, Yun. I was going to ask about uh, China's space program, but that's like a whole topic on its own, so I might get a, a space specialist on about that. Uh, just as we record this, the Shenzhou-14 uh, spacecraft docked with the space station, Tianhe, I think I've got that right, um, and that's like the third crew, I think, a sixth month-long mission and they're going to complete the building of the space station, which is, yeah, that's that's something that deserves its own podcast, I think. But uh, Yun Jiang, mm. thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Two things before we wrap up, things I need to address. Dear listener. First of all, uh, in the last episode, we spoke about garlic uh, with um, David Gerard. We spoke about other things too, obviously, but we did speak about garlic. And I mentioned that uh, in, a, in a back garden once I found wild garlic growing. Well, it turns out I was probably wrong. Uh, Matthew Moorcroft uh, dropped me a note to say, you're probably thinking of elephant garlic with one big clove. I've linked to it. I'm not going to go into it now. Wild garlic and elephant garlic are two different things. Look them up. I'm pretty sure I meant elephant garlic. And Dave Gokroger dropped me a note uh, on Twitter today, actually, to say that the leader of the Liberal Party, Peter Dutton, and the leader of the National Party, David Littleproud, are both actually LNP members, the Queensland thing, the Liberal National Party. Now, as you probably have heard, I object to people just writing the LNP when they mean the coalition because the LNP is only a thing in Queensland uh, and in the rest of Australia there's the Liberal Party and there's the National Party and they operate as a coalition, especially in government. We called them the coalition government. And I objected to people calling them the LNP government. Well, Dave Gorkrocher asks, now that both the Liberal leader and the Nationals leader are from Queensland and members of the LNP, will I continue to rage against the coalition being referred to as the LNP as shorthand? It's a good question. It, it is a, a serious ontological question, and I will think about this. What do you think? 
Should we use LNP as a shorthand for the coalition or should we restrict that use solely to talking about the LNP, the Liberal National Party, in the fine state of Queensland? Please send me your answers on a postcard. That's all the edict for now. All the links are at the 9pmedict.com. Just uh, click through and look for the episode. If you would like to support this podcast, the 9pmedict.com slash tip, please do that. The next episode uh, will be with David F. Porteous. Get your trigger words in by the evening of Wednesday, the 15th of June. Until then, I'm still Gerian. Until then, I'm still Gerian. Wash your hands. The 9pm Edict is a Skank Media production. Sorry.